Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Robin Mansell. Robin, it's a delight to see you. There are books on the desk behind you and many in the bookcases behind you. It looks terribly studious in a wonderful way. So given all that knowledge that's floating around in those bookcases and on that desk, or not, tell us what's occupying you at the moment, what you're thinking about, what's driving you, what's animating you, what's troubling you. I think uh, most of my career has been uh, an easy balance between sticking to the more conventional academic road and being outside of that intervening in policy. And I've always done that with a, a degree of optimism that some change for the better is possible. And I think increasingly in light of the crises, regional, global, local that we're facing of all kinds, whether it's war, environment, etc., it becomes harder and harder, I think, for me to justify the types of roles that I've played as an academic in the past, especially now that I've retired. So I no longer have the um, optimism that goes with uh, teaching and engaging, you know, every week with students who uh, will go on long after me. Um, <clears throat> and so I suppose what's on my mind is where and how do I most effectively intervene, given that I'm not going to give up the pen, so to speak, or my voice. And uh, that's great for the rest of us. So perhaps deriving from Canadian origins where there has always been or appears to an outsider to have been some sort of entree to policy formation for critical scholars as well as more conventional ones. You saw that as a route to influence, but it sounds as though despite your success in that area and the amount of energy you dedicated to it, you think that some of those openings have closed off? Um, I wouldn't put it as starkly as that. <clears throat> I think in, in Canada during the time that I was uh, studying initially being supervised by someone like uh, Dallas Smythe, a political economist, in one sense, it was kind of a guide to not become involved in formal policy deliberation <laughs> because he was far more the revolutionary. Yeah. But I also had uh, supervisors who said, no, um, you can be a revolutionary and also a reformer at the same time. And so in that sense, um, there, I sat on a, a kind of a odd sort of fulcrum, if you like, between yes. the more radical political economy and the more reformist political economy. And that tension was one that I think persists in Canada. And in that sense, um, I think there is a healthy um, amount of attempts to intervene in formal policy decision-making. When I left, which was quite a long time ago, uh, 35 years ago, and tried to integrate myself into the UK and into Europe, I think we've seen uh, openings and closings at different times. So mm -hmm. I guess if we take the contemporary times around all of the struggles to intervene to, uh, if you like, fix the platforms, reduce the harms of digital communication, I think in some ways... Although many, many people are having their voices heard by uh, parliaments and legislatures in Europe and in the UK, 
it seems to me that there's a closure because it is very much an elite who is able to offer a technical vocabulary and quite often technical fixes to some of the problems, which seems, hmm, in my view at least, somewhat self-defeating. Of course, it can make a difference if you're talking about, say, the harms to children or adults as a result of digital platforms. Mm -hmm. Doing something is better than doing nothing quite often if you can Mm -hmm. reduce harms, but it doesn't alter the fundamental fact of the kind of digital ecology which has been permitted to grow and is being encouraged. Could you tell us a bit more about that when you say the kind of media ecology that has been permitted to grow and has been encouraged. What is that? And what were the, you know, you've made many interventions that I'm aware of over the last, say, 25 years to try to influence those things. What's emerged? What do you think the the state of play is and why? Well, I think with the emphasis on innovation, innovation, competitiveness globally, regionally, as the poll factor for investing in various generations of digital technology. And now we have the most Mm. recent uh, supposedly existential threat of um, generative AI. Um, That has been the the dominant um, feature, if you like, which has been the pull for a greater innovation. And coming behind that have been a whole variety of critical voices. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't appear that they have really, until very recently, say the last five years or so, started to be heard. And when they are heard, in my view at least, what they achieve is interventions which are producing labyrinthine types of legislation, which is welcomed by some. So the Digital Services Act in Europe or the... Um, Online Safety Act in the UK and various um, facsimiles around the world, all designed to create uh, some kind of governance arrangement, some kind of controls over these large big tech companies who are providing the new digital ecology. Um, And my concern is not to say that should stop, but that so much less attention is given to the underlying politics and the interests of the people that are creating that labyrinthine glut governance structure and will be um, held responsible for implementing it. And I have concerns about the expected and unexpected outcomes. And I don't think myself that any of these moves are really putting us onto a very different pathway towards a safer, more collective, commons-based approach to providing a cumulative environment. Thank you. That's an incredibly interesting answer that just stimulates all sorts of thoughts on my part. What would be a better way of going about it if one were making policy in the European Union or Britain or even, heaven forfend, the United States? And here I have the weakest of possible answers, which is where (laughs) I struggle, because my my answer is um, a more open dialogue which is more open to surprise to the unexpected Mm. to um tipping points if you like where at the moment it looks like you have this technological juggernaut which is unfolding and uh, as i said the finance behind it is is pushing really hard 
to win competitive races, um, at what point unexpectedly do opportunities arise mm -hmm. to actually intervene to make a difference? So we are, as I said, we're seeing all sorts of legislative moves and regulatory moves to try to do that. But I don't think that's the full answer. And I suppose, um, along with people like Chantal Mouffe, who, who say that at some points you may arrive at a temporary ceasefire between opposing stakeholders, mm. right? May. May. And at that point, if that happens, I think there are opportunities for um, building a different kind of environment, or at least building one that can grow in parallel with the big tech companies. Yes, one of the things that I think I'm seeing at the moment is one of those bizarre moments when fractions of capital that have been in conflict, uh, namely the big aggregators, so-called publishers or not, of materials such as Google and Microsoft and Apple, having been in some sort of conflict with entities like the Hollywood studios and owners of the bourgeois media, now seem to be forming some kind of rough alliance over the desire to regulate artificial intelligence because their interests have converged for the moment and to an extent in the sense that the traditional copyright holders who don't like people, as they see it, ripping off what they own and hence have hated Google, take Rupert Murdoch, for example, find themselves connected in the sense that both want regulation of artificial intelligence very early on in the process, talking about, oh, we made, a mis we made a mistake with social media by not regulating it. We can't allow that to happen again, even though this may be a very temporary alliance because it's partly at least to do with the fact that these search entities that I mentioned now have interest in intellectual property content. It's not dissimilar to those of the studios or the traditional media agencies, but also, of course, they want to control the development of the hardware and the software of artificial intelligence itself. So I, I don't know whether you think that's an accurate account, but I'm wondering whether it makes for an interesting moment of, however, contingently an alignment of these competing business forces. I I, I think it does. And I think it uh, it it sits, though, on a continuous pathway towards a future which is dominated by uh, companies, corporate actors, whether they come from the media side, information production side, or the tech platform side, um, and AI, which uh, it does look as if they're kind of converging in terms of their interests. But I think Pretty soon when we see it, start to see some of the discussions which are happening now mm -hmm. get into the um, the fine detail, we'll find that how you carve up the pie in the interests of that wider set of actors mm -hmm. will start mm -hmm. to lead back to some divergences <laughs> and some fights, whether it's through mergers and acquisitions or through a re reconfiguration of the market. Um, I think there's still going to be surprises. And a term I didn't use earlier was uh, it seems to me that the absence of a multi-stakeholder, if you like, set of discussions going on. I mean, where are the independent film producers? Mm. Where are the uh, small local media outlets, news outlets, et cetera, in this discussion? They are kind of submerged 
and quite often silenced or bought up. And so although you might say, well, maybe we'll get a more um, inclusive environment for uh, an information um, production supply side as a result of all of this, uh, I think it's not as inclusive as it looks. And there will be a lot of entities who are left out, not the least to say uh, those in the global south. So we also have to remember that all of this is mainly going on around a lot of uh, very powerful American or uh, at least global north or Chinese companies who are working this this out for themselves, not for um, those who are historically disadvantaged or excluded in different ways. Rather than continue to talk about the present and the future, I wonder if I could catapult us into the past a bit and go back to something that you raised earlier, which is the interesting combination of doctoral advisors that you had. One reformist, one radical, put crudely in my terms. Without going into too much into the personalities involved, unless you wish to, but no need. Could you tell us what it was like navigating between doctoral advisors with quite distinct optics, ways of seeing takes on the world? Um, I suppose, I mean, we're talking about, uh, when was it, um, the early 1980s. Um, and here I was, a woman with two very well-known <laughs> male supervisors. Alpha so males, it, alpha males. Uh, what was it like? Um, I used to sit and in a very bemused way and watch back and <laughs> forth, back and forth. <laughs> and uh, both of them separately employed me as a research assistant on <laughs> their different projects. Simultaneously, I must add. <laughs> um, so in order, I had to work for my living um, some of the time. And so they would have meetings because quite often one would be leading the project and the other one would be a collaborator. And so they would critique what I had read, I, what I had produced um, mm-hmm. through each other's lenses. So it, it was quite the journey. And, I, you know, after I finished um, my PhD, I, I did not want to be an academic. Really? Okay. I never envisaged myself as being an academic. And I think, um, one of them was trying to send me off to become a trainee regulator in Ottawa and Canada, working for one of the private telecommunication companies. And the other one was trying to send me off to be an activist and to join various groups. Um, and for a while, I did neither. Eventually, I escaped uh, to Europe and for a time worked at the OECD, which is very much in the reformist category. And for the historian of political economy, I have letters, typewritten letters from Dallas Smythe to very lengthy, explaining to me the wrongness of my ways, the wrongness of my thinking, how I had become a collaborator, etc. cetera, um, which he expected responses to. And now, I did. This is a guy who had been a regulator himself before he was red-baited, right? I mean... Yeah. It was okay for him to do these things. Um, So I never knew um, these folks. But I wonder if you could 
also tell us a little bit about this issue that you've just raised of being a woman with two alpha males uh, and in general what it's like being a woman which puts you in a minority position in policy debates especially which has tended to be a more i would say male occupied domain um I think it's changing now, uh, despite the fact that in the STEM fields, there are so few women who are being trained in that field. But at least in terms of policy deliberations, yes. it's a more open uh, situation, certainly than it was when I first entered it um, in the 1980s, where given that if you had asked me then what was I studying, it would have been telecommunications regulation, which... Um, Sounds very boring in some ways, but that's what I would have said. Yeah. Um, and uh, I would be the only woman in many circles. And then I came to uh, the United Kingdom and I used to go to what was then the Department of Trade and Industry. And I would be the only woman in policy debates. Uh, I worked at the Science Policy Research Unit at Sussex University, which at the time had about 70, 70 uh, researchers in it, and I think maybe there were two or three women. Wow. Um, so it, it was a, a different world from that point of view. Um, it was, for me, um, and this is something I'm not proud of, it didn't drive me to become uh, a feminist scholar, so it didn't drive me to do research on the exclusion of women from policymaking and or other walks of life. Um, I stuck more with the uh, institutional structural approaches to these issues. Um, I don't know, looking back on it, maybe this was a defense survival choice. If it had been a more inclusive environment, I might have been braver. <laughs> I wasn't, and I am where I am now. I appreciate very much the frankness of that answer. And I think people have to find ways of thriving within complex constraints and constantly to put them under some sort of obligation to represent something beyond themselves if they are in minoritized situations is asking too much. Uh, also going back, 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 but not quite as far back, there are a couple of terms that recur often in your work, though less so recently, I think, and that are used a lot. And I wondered if you could help us understand what they are, what they mean, and where they, how they resonate today, namely the information society and the knowledge society. Could you explain information society, knowledge society, where they differ or overlap, and whether they are actually still in your thinking? Um, well, I think both, when used in the singular society, um, are uh, constructions um, and labels which are very much emerged out of a dominant discourse which was heavily tech-driven. Um, and so in that sense, I think it just depends on who you read, whether or not you think the information society is somehow different from knowledge society. What I tried to do in my earlier work was um, 
unpack those tropes. And one way of doing that, which sometimes worked, uh, was to pluralize societies. So I, I get I, my provocation was uh, to try to call people's attention to the fact that regardless of whether you thought you had an understanding of what information is or what data are or what knowledge is, if you at least thought of those terms in a pluralistic sense that would call attention to diversity of place, of peoples, of times, then you might be able to have a conversation that was different from the tropes that people and the mantra where people were saying, ah, because we have the internet, because we have digital technology, we're entering a global information society and all of the you know American um, rhetoric around this. And so what I tried to do was rather than come up with a final definition of what is the information society or the knowledge society, but to pluralize and to think about what it really means to communicate, to live in a mediated world that powerful people had chosen to call the information society. And so I would often critique those who uh, were publishing endless, endless articles on the information society or the knowledge society, as if it was uh, some disembodied construct, which everybody had to get on board with. So that was my... (laughs) Thank you for that. My... my previous approach to information society. But again, here comes the reformist me. I also then sometimes would get pushed into a situation where I would convince myself that to communicate with those very people who I wanted to criticize, I had to use their vocabulary. So if you do look at my CV, you will see from time to time that I drop the societies and (laughs) I go back to the information society. So um, I don't have a perfect record on this. But that was my my intention, was always to try to destabilize, deconstruct, if you like, the dominant tropes that come out of these institutions and appear to be dropped on us like manna from heaven. And we're all supposed to do empirical investigation to flesh out what is uh, information society. This just seems to me to always seem to me to be the wrongest way um, of thinking about these things. And one of the reasons for that is that I had never started from the media side of things. I always started from the communicative process side of things. And so my interest, both in terms of human communication, but also technical, uh, you know, sort of network communication has always been very much on the meaning side, on the um, process side, which is easier to talk about as a form of communication than it is to speak about as something called the information society or something called the media, for example. And I guess one of the factors here too is the endless and effortless extrapolation from the United States made by so many writers and policymakers and business people as if it were the society and could be applied to the rest of the world. I mean, it's not the fault necessarily of people like Daniel Bell or Spignev Brzezinski or Alvin Toffler that they wrote what they did about the United States. And some of what they wrote, particularly Bell, was very perspicacious, I think. But it was taken up by a lot of people as holy writ about the entirety of human endeavor. 
uh, I think, and frequently without a smattering of consideration for, in particular, the global south. And the same with neoclassical economists, for whom their fantasies about the United States, always erroneous, were the model for the rest of the world. Get the same thing with developmental ideas within political science or within communication studies, you know, how to have a democratic and effective world of journalism. Ah, we've got these wonderful examples, which are Western Europe and the United States and Canada. So I, I think there's a there's a problem there often, not necessarily with the original ideas when they were meant to be about one country, however problematic they may have been, but more in their use by others to extrapolate to the entirety of the world. And um, anyway, the other thing I wanted to ask you about related to that is something to do with the history of technology. If I were to say to you that 25 years ago, the history of the, sorry, 25 years ago, the future of the internet could be predicted by looking at the history of radio. What would that say to you, if anything? Um, the first thing I would say is that when we look at um, the history of the development of technologies, we should look for discontinuities as well as continuities. I've always been interested in that fulcrum. So anybody who starts to tell me that because we have something happening at time one, it'll look this way at time two, it seems to me is um, imagining a linear trajectory of change, which has never made sense to me. Um, but that said, putting my political economy hat on, I think there are strong continuities in terms of asymmetrical power relations which notwithstanding what people were saying about the beginning of um, the internet was, oh, it's a new opportunity to have an open, inclusive environment, which is horizontal and flat and not subject to hierarchical controls. Um, and many internet um, uh, experts would continue to claim that if you think just about the, the technical infrastructure itself. Um, and perhaps at one time, the radio have, you know, was a one-way communication medium. Um, radio itself morphed into more of a two-way communication medium because it moved into the internet space. Um, and what, what do we see is the consolidation of ownership arrangements of structural power asymmetries. And I think the same is beginning to happen with the internet now. When we hear about national sovereignty, digital sovereignty, about fragmentation of the internet, about um, regional controls, and it's not, I think, due to the technology, it's due to the geopolitics that are happening in the world. And this, in turn, is informing how our infrastructure of communication is being configured and reconfigured. Some would argue for better, some because they would say, well, we have to do this in order to protect democracy. Others would say for worse, because you lose that um, imaginary in some way, horizontalization of mm. the possibility of communication. Has that kind of utopia driven you? What kind of utopia? Utopia of multi-point communication that is horizontal, non-hierarchical, open. In some ways, I mean, you've come back a number of times to my Canadian origins, but one of the, you know, most, the, the, 
first thing perhaps I understood about um, communication early on in, I don't know how old I would have been, but the oral tradition of communication in one sense seems to me that, you know, whether between two people or between groups of people, to have a possibility of being horizontal and mutual, at least the possibility. And yet, I also came to know that even interpersonal and group communication can be infused with asymmetrical power relations. Um, and so whenever I thought about the development of the material infrastructure, like the internet, my first thought would be, yes, as an ideal, the horizontal possibilities are very attractive. The decentralization, because it opens the possibility for removing some of those hierarchies of power. But at the same time, I don't think I was ever an innocent. <laughs> I would always be looking for, all right, the materiality may be apparently horizontal, but that does not mean that the oral communication tradition is a horizontal because the individuals who become involved are located themselves in the real world in a different place. So there's a problem, I think, from what you're saying in reducing things to technologies, pure and simple, be they communications technologies or be they the bourgeois media, the public service media, whatever we may say, because there are wider social forces at play. Have I got that right? No, not there is a materiality and an immateriality. There is a, a structural side, but there is also a side which is symbolic meaning. And I think, you know, although I am not a cultural studies person in terms of a label, I was always influenced by the idea that it was ridiculous to think about technology over here and people over here mm. as if culture and communication was something how somehow separate from that which materializes as an infrastructure of communication. For me, the two are symbiotic, always in uneasy tension, and it is human beings in their respective positions which materialize their values, their um, moral perspectives and positions and their ambitions into that material infrastructure. So if you want to call it a constructivist position, perhaps that would be the popular term today. When I was being trained, not that many people were talking about constructivism, at least not in my department at Simon Fraser University. So I probably would have described it differently. But today I do see the material is constructed by the social, the cultural, the political, and the economic, mm. and that you cannot tear them apart. I went to an event seven years ago, organized by Facebook and Sage Publishers and O'Reilly Communications at Facebook's headquarters, where they invited, I think, 350 social scientists from around the world to tell them what the future would be. I looked around the room and I think there were 175 girls and 175 boys and 347 white people. So I complained about this and was never invited back. But I did talk to people I knew at the publishing house, Sage, and they actually came up to me, whereas everybody else avoided me for the rest of the event. 
and said, we worked really hard on getting the gender balance right. We didn't think about these other issues. And the people I was talking to included a, a senior Arab-descended executive and a junior uh, executive woman of colour from uh, outside the UK, which had organised the event. It was really interesting to me. And as I made my way to the extent you could around Facebook, I saw again and again constant cleaning services. Every surface you could see was cleansed every quarter of an hour. Almost every surface was white. The cleaners were Latinos and Latinas. The executive employees were white. There weren't even many Asian faces. But of course, you couldn't go into lots of areas because the only black people were security guards who stopped you from going into various areas or didn't need to because when you stepped across a certain invisible line, alarms would go off. We had to sign non-disclosure agreements to get into the building, so I'm breaking that, I guess. It was my one opportunity to look inside the beast of the tech bros. You've probably had a lot more such opportunities. <laughs> Any thoughts on what I observed? Um. Well, I guess uh, first reflection would be is uh, I have been asked over the last years to sign NDAs and I always refused. Also, when I was working in areas having to do with crime and cybersecurity, I was asked to sign um, whatever specific government see as their uh, security acts in order to... <laughs> um, ensure that you don't repeat anything outside of the project you're working on and I refused. And so actually you're wrong. I haven't been inside many of these places because I wouldn't, I just wasn't going to go there. Even though I knew that if I did, I would make all sorts of contacts and probably have rich empirical information to play around with that I wouldn't otherwise have. But then maybe I wouldn't be able to publish it. So no, I never went down that path. Um, but on the issue of uh, racism and the issue of inequalities. Um, for quite a time, I was doing quite a lot of work with UN agencies. And um, one of the things I noticed was uh, similar to what you experienced is that all these people, experts, would get on airplanes and we would fly to India or some country in Africa um, or uh, Asia for um, meetings to discuss research initiatives. And, um, and we're now talking 19, late 1980s, mid-1990s. Um, and we get off the airplane, we go to fancy hotels, and we would get into boardrooms and various venues, not big conferences, but, you know, groups where you're supposed to be talking with local people. Um, and yes, you would have some local people who are not white, uh, you might have a, a gender balance or not. And then we get back on the airplane and we fly home. And we would uh, produce a report and that report would circulate widely. And that's what I meant by where does one intervene when we started this conversation? Because I decided eventually to stop doing that. 
because <laughs> I understood that I didn't have the uh, resources to be doing it constantly. I wasn't an area studies person, so I wasn't going to be able to go and locate myself in some of these countries to really come to try to work on the ground in a participatory way with people. Yeah, yeah. And so I saw uh, that this just this really disgraceful um, lack of understanding that these experts, including sometimes myself, were being brought in as if we had some kind of knowledge, which brings us back to the knowledge societies issue, um, which we could uh, transfer and diffuse uh, uh, to those who are in need uh, to reduce poverty or to meet what are now called the sustainable development goals. And um, I, I just could not understand how this was legitimate. And I used to say so. And a bit like you, I gradually got myself into a position where I wasn't invited back over the years. And then I stopped altogether doing that kind of work. And my current book, uh, that I'm writing is really a retrospective reflection on that experience. Um, of, just to tell one anecdote, uh, sitting in the um, UN compound in Addis Ababa, uh, late at night coming out, having done a rapporteur's job after working with a number of people, um, and everyone else had gone home. And I saw before me all of these men and women cleaning the marble floor in this beautiful building, um, no doubt being paid nothing and basically being treated as as the servants of the elite policy experts who had been flown in to give advice on what to do about digital communication. Could you tell us a little bit more about this book? It sounds fascinating without giving away who done it at the end and the big secret, the revelation. Um. The, uh, I wish I knew what the revolution would be. <laughs> I haven't finished the book yet. Um, <clears throat> but uh, in a way, it's 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 a um, a bit of a polemic against uh, the top-down developmental innovation in technology, economic growth mantra, which I'm has been written about extensively, you know, from a neoliberal point of view, but um, quite often with a kind of a critical vein underpinning it with an attempt to destabilize it, but without actually undoing it. And so the book is really a story of illustrations of applications of digital technology in different times and places where the, the expectation has been that you are actually trying to make a difference but that there are so many institutional or social or cultural or political uh, forces working against that, that time and again, a space is not made for those people on the ground. And instead, what we talk about is participation, about um, participatory action research, as if it was some kind of panacea for destabilizing the deeper structural forces, which are driving poverty, inequality, and in a distorted communicative environment. So it's a, a retrospective over 30 years of how that has happened. And then in addition, a discourse analysis of how that is reflected in 30 years of documentation. Wow. This sounds a bit like the return of Dallas Smythe, <laughs> but predicated on knowledge that you, you could only have gotten 
by following the reformist path. That's an interesting way of putting it. <laughs> well, of course, I haven't read the book, so I know everything about it. Um, Robin, I had a couple more questions, if I may, and actually three questions. And then I would like to throw it to you to add to what we've said, if there are things that we've not touched on that you would like us to. The The first question is about your extraordinary productivity. And I apologize, in a sense, for using that term. You've produced a mountain of monographs, edited collections, essays in journals, talks, etc., over many years that have been very influential on a lot of people, myself included. What's the key? How did you do it? What's the secret? Here we have a long pause. <laughs> I don't have a sensible answer. A lot of people think that I just did it by working all the time, um, but that isn't really true. I've had a good life. <laughs> um I think maybe the key is to have been surrounded both at Sussex when I was there, but also in building our Department of Media and Communication um, at the LSE by, <clears throat> by remarkable people who were always encouraging of not just talking, but writing and uh LSE perhaps more so on the academic output side than Sprue Sussex was, but nevertheless, there was always a coupling of if you understand something, if you want to influence the world, no matter how small that contribution is that you can make, you should contribute to the academic discourse, but you should also contribute to other kinds of discourses uh, which I've been summarizing as policy discourse, but I could have said activist instead. Mm -hmm. So remarkable people encouraging me all along the way. I, I can't think of any other reason because um, that's what happened. And LSE stands for London School of Economics and Political Science, but better known, I guess, historically for its economics. So next question is to ask about how you find out things. Uh, it depends on the type of work that I'm doing. Um, not so much in recent years, but in former years, I was a practitioner of multiple methodologies for finding answers to things. I did qualitative work. I did quantitative work. Um, I listened to people. I interviewed people. I did surveys. Um and more recently, I suppose I um, have become a bit more reliant on uh, secondary inputs to coming to understand the world because I've had less time. I, you know, I took on administrative roles and that meant less listening to people and going places. Um, and as that happened, I suppose I began to, um, in a way, do less original empirical research. Um, but that, but that there were exceptions to that. Um, and I guess I've always had a bit of a bias towards qualitative approaches, but I have been informed by many quantitative um, types of inputs to my thinking. And I again, I'll come back to Dallas Smythe because although um, 
he would rail against the positivist use of quantitative methodologies. He would also tell his students and anybody who would listen to him that numbers have their place. Yes, and it can be such a disabling bifurcation um, when when one's at conferences and somebody says things like, are you a critical scholar? <laughs> Questions like that. I never know how to answer. They can also be used to mystify. I mean, there's no doubt about that. And the quantification of everything, um, including human bodies, <laughs> is not... Um, what I would view as a very productive way forward. Uh, but nevertheless, numbers have their place. Oh, absolutely. And the point is that the words that people use get turned into numbers by quantitative scholarship and then turned back into words. That's how it works. And in the case of people who don't use numbers but only use words, they're often relying for what they deem to be important on what are numbers, things like demography for example, amongst many other influences. So my last question before throwing it to you, Prof, is to ask you about what would be the right kinds of regulation of the current communications technologies if one were in the global south, if one were in the global north, if one were in the European Union, if one were in Canada, are there particular ways of regulating that you would favour? Um, use of the term right tends to suggest there might be a right way of approaching these issues um, in a rather disembodied sense that is beyond the institutions and cultures of the places in which uh, we find ourselves needing to intervene to govern um, so I don't think there is a right way, and I think one of the problems is that the export of te templates um, from the Global North to the Global South, as if um, the words that are embodied in those templates of regulation um, can be easily translated into practice, and I think it's a continuation of a technology um, or policy transfer process, which has gone on for far too long. That said... Um, <laughs> it seems pretty clear that resistance and struggle against the harms of these big tech platforms is essential in the same way that we struggle against other crises. So um, I would be the last person to say we just leave misinformation and disinformation, for example, um, you know, to expand and explode <laughs> destroyed democracies. But what is the right way of intervening? It isn't, I honestly don't have the answer. What I do have is the suggestion of um, bringing together different stakeholders to struggle to try to find some ways through, because whichever ways they find, there will be accusations on different sides that one person's notion of what is a way of securing a network from harm is censored for another person sitting in some other place. So paradox and um, contradiction, I think, has to be seen as part and parcel of any regulatory process. And if 
people who are devising and designing regulations or legislation could begin to understand that what they are engaged in is a contradictory paradoxical process by definition that it will not have singular positive good outcomes as expected when regulations are put in place that things will change along the way and that if uh, the priority is to try to um, offer protection and to treat people in humane ways then the only approach to regulation really is one which takes into account the interests, mm -hmm. expectations, desires, and positionality of people on the ground in particular places. Thanks so much. So, Prof. Robin, could I invite you now to add to or subtract from, if you like, the topics we've touched on? Are there things that, on reflection, you'd like to conjure up for us that we touched on but you'd like a different angle on? Or are there themes in your work or in the wider world that we didn't discuss that you wish to offer some thoughts about? Uh, well, I apologize for any confusions that I might have introduced when I was speaking um, as the first thing. And the second thing is to say, I suppose uh, a constant theme, I think, throughout my work um, earlier and now has been a real struggle with what I see as very dysfunctional technical and human systems. Then there's the dis dysfunctionality, which is not um, intended, but that creates harms, that exaggerates inequalities where they exist and is accomplished through an increasingly complex um, technological or digital system. I think if there's any core theme in, in my own interest in this whole field, it is how to understand that dysfunctionality, what creates it, and how to mitigate, moderate it in the instances when that might become possible. Thank you so much for a wonderful answer. As I say to many of my guests, I always learn a lot from reading your work. And today I've learned even more from the chance to question you about it. So greatly appreciated. Thank you very much for the possibility.